Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about empowering each of us with the perspective and tools to grow and change. You know, each day we live, we have a series of choices of where to spend our time and what to think and how to go about our day. Some people choose to fill their day with positive energy and worthwhile things. That's why I like uplifting podcasts. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life. And the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. So hopefully today in this time together, we'll get a new perspective of how to think and live better. Let's get started. Today, let's continue our discussion from last week. Let's talk about what is a leader. And let's continue with a few critical questions and answers that can help us all lead better. Many of you listening to this podcast today are leaders. You lead a team, perhaps you lead an organization, and you most likely lead a family. And the type of leader we are can and does change the people and organizations we lead. But often, leaders must ignite change. And organizations and culture are hard to change. So here's today's first leadership question. How does a leader ignite change in an organization? Well, on Tuesday, January 28, 1986, millions of Americans were glued to their television set. Why? Because a teacher from New Hampshire was one of seven passengers aboard the space shuttle Challenger, and it was about to take off from Cape Canaveral. This space shuttle mission was the 25th shuttle launch. NASA had undertaken months of public relations and media campaigns to use this launch as a way to re-energize and recapture the attention of the country. The space shuttle program had become routine. No one had been watching the recent launches or even interested in NASA. So the idea was hatched to invite a teacher aboard. And she would teach students across the country from the space shuttle and bring the needed attention to NASA. Catapulting Challenger off the ground and out of the atmosphere, however, was no easy task. The 200-foot-tall space shuttle weighed 4.4 million pounds. That's like stacking on top of each other 125 semi-tractors and trailers and propelling them upward until they reach a speed of 25,000 miles per hour, which allows the shuttle to escape the Earth's gravitational force. Well, to do this, they used two solid rocket boosters attached to the space shuttle, each loaded with 1.1 million pounds of fuel, and each rocket booster consumed 11,000 pounds of fuel per second. Sitting atop the tower of fuel and rocket engines sat the crew cabin, about 16 by 16 feet. Strapped into their seats in that tiny cabin that day were two pilots, three mission specialists, and two payload specialists, including teacher Krista McAuliffe. The launch on that Tuesday had been scheduled several days earlier, but weather and mechanical issues caused the launch to be scrubbed three times. Each time, millions of schoolchildren and people across the country had tuned in to watch the launch only to wait several hours before the launch was canceled. Most embarrassing for NASA was the launch that was canceled once because there was a problem with the handle on the door to the crew cabin. Well, given the delays and public pressure that was mounting to launch the shuttle, on Monday night, the evening before the launch, NASA was evaluating whether to delay again. Why? Well, there was a rare cold front sweeping across Florida, 
Temperatures were expected to be as low as 20 degrees, well below freezing. NASA had asked all major partners to make their recommendations as to whether the launch should proceed. On Monday night, a conference call was held. Engineers at Morton Thiokol, the makers of the large rocket boosters, expressed concerns about the stability of the O-rings that helped seal the seven sections of the booster rockets together. From analysis of the O-rings recovered from boosters on previous flights, it was determined that cold temperatures could cause the O-rings to be less resilient and fail. 54 degrees was the recommended minimum launch temperature. After engineers recommended the delay, NASA Director Larry Malloy said, My gosh, Thiokol, when do you want me to launch? Next April? Given the pressure applied by NASA, Thiokol relinquished agreeing to the go-ahead for launch. Many of the engineers would later say they felt like they should say something to stop the launch, but they didn't act. Despite the warnings from the engineers the night before, despite it being 22 degrees at the time of launch, despite two to three foot icicles hanging off much of the launch structure, despite the known risks the next morning, NASA launched the Challenger into the sky at 11.38 a.m. Seven seconds after ignition, the right booster aft section joint bent under pressure. The rubber O-ring did not expand to fill the gap because it was cold and unresponsive. Smoke shot out of the booster. As Challenger rose in the sky, fuel began to escape from the side of the booster and burn. Finally, 70 seconds into the flight, the booster section broke apart and the millions of pounds of fuel immediately ignited and the space shuttle broke apart. The crew cabin remained intact, separating from the shuttle. It was designed to survive such an impact. Cameras would track the crew cabin with the seven passengers still inside as the cabin began a free fall towards the Earth. At this point, several of the crew turned on their oxygen packs. The pilot also made several attempts to restore electrical power. Approximately two minutes and 45 seconds later, the cabin hit the ocean's surface at 207 miles per hour. No one survived, and the cabin was recovered from the ocean's floor days later. Now, months of questions would follow. How did this happen? How did some of the country's brightest engineers not take action? Lives lost, billions of dollars in cost, years of work gone to waste, all because of the failure to act on one conference call. One of the reasons Thiokol engineers failed to act was due to what sociologist Diane Vaughn deemed as the normalization of deviance. This is the process in which a deviance from what is correct or proper becomes normalized. And this happens all the time in organizations that we lead. Practices become normalized. Excuses become normalized. Excuses that we talk about so much, they become reality in the culture because people don't attempt. And you may be leading a team right now and your team members may have stopped being as effective as they used to be. The norm has changed. And you may be asking yourself, how do I as a leader reestablish new and better norms that are at a higher level of performance than my team has been used to recently? Well, deviation on teams happens all the time. We set goals or have established values, but after not working towards those goals or living up to those values, our team's behavior, even their thinking, becomes normalized. We start to accept it. 
But here's the truth. There's no neutral ground. Each time your team chooses not to act, it moves them further away from who they're supposed to be. So as a leader, your job is to constantly help the team see true north, helping them see what is acceptable behavior and reestablish the right practices. A few years ago, I started leading an organization that had for years focused almost exclusively on cost control, the budget, so to speak. Each year, the budget process took hundreds of hours. The teams would submit budgets, and then another team of senior leaders would make decisions about where to cut and what changes to make. There was no deviation from these budgets throughout the year. The resulting culture was full of excuses because often opportunities would come about during the year. But the practice was to say, oh, it's not in the budget, so we can't do it. Oh, we can't afford this. And all the focus was on the costs in the budget. All the while, the revenue generated by the organization fell each year because in some cases you have to spend money to make money. And there was no investment back into the company or infrastructure. Soon, the customer experience suffered and revenue fell even more. You can see that the budget had become normalized and everyone accepted it. And with a falling budget, they could not afford good wages, so the people that were hired to lead were not the cream of the crop. So, the first thing I had to do was to change the mindset to get the organization focused on bringing more customers and becoming excellent. You wouldn't believe how hard this was to do. Every time I tried, someone would say, it's not in the budget. So they had to see that if they followed a different course, it would work. So I purposefully set up several efforts that were bound to succeed. And soon they started to have more faith. As John Maxwell put it, people don't at first follow worthy causes. They follow worthy leaders who promote causes they can believe in. As leaders, we have to give people reasons to buy into us. If you're leading a team and many team members have stopped doing the critical activities that lead to success, then perhaps they need to buy into you again. That process usually occurs in three progressive steps. First, they buy into your character or motive. The process of buy-in always starts with trust. Until people trust you, they'll always hold back. They won't completely buy into you or your leadership until you have their trust. Second, they buy into your competence. There's no leadership without competence. People don't buy into leaders who can't produce or don't have a track record. You must prove your competence. And the more you demonstrate it, the more they will buy in. Third, they buy into your commitment. The final piece of the puzzle is commitment. People don't buy into leaders who lack it. Only commitment will keep the leader engaged in the cause, and only the demonstration of that commitment will prompt others to buy in as well. That was the case for Ed Bastian, the CEO of Delta Airlines, during the COVID-19 pandemic. In April of 2021, Delta announced that employees would be asked to return to work in person at Delta's headquarters. And on June 12th, Ed posted a message on Instagram welcoming them back. He wrote, After the most challenging year in our history, it's an exciting day in Atlanta as we welcome back Delta Lines family members for the official reopening of our global headquarters. Our people and culture 
are the delta difference. Collaboration is such a vital part of what we create. And it's at its best when we're physically together. I'm grateful for the resilience of the Delta people throughout the past year, especially those across our operations who showed up at work smiling, masked, and prepared every single day to serve our customers and offer a safe, clean travel experience. It's going to be a great summer as we safely reunite with our colleagues, families, and friends. Now it's time to get back out and see the world. And in an environment where 81% of workers in the United States didn't want to return to the office, and 39% were considering quitting instead of returning, all of Delta's employees returned. Why? Because Ed Bastian had a 22-year history with the airline creating trust. Employees bought into him, so they followed his leadership. Next question. Let's say you're leading a team. How do you create explosive growth? Well, the simple saying is, to add growth, lead people. To get explosive growth, lead leaders. I've learned this firsthand many times. Your job as a leader is to help develop as many capable leaders on your team who can carry the vision forward. The same goes for your family, too, by the way. Again, as Maxwell says, becoming a leader who develops leaders requires an entirely different focus and attitude from simply attracting and leading followers. It takes a different mindset. Add 10 followers to your organization and you have the power of 10 people. Add 10 leaders to your organization and you have the power of 10 leaders times all the followers and leaders they influence. That's the difference between addition and multiplication. It's like growing your organization by teams instead of by individuals. But the truth is that leaders, real leaders are hard to find and they're hard to attract and they're hard to keep. They're hard to find because not very many people have that rare combination of being able to influence others, have strong personal ethics, be effective at their work, and be diligent in leading by example. But here is how you find those leaders. First, be super clear about what you're looking for. Recruiting is the success behind almost all successful organizations. And the truth is, that you often find what you're looking for. So when you're clear about what you value in a person, when you meet that person, you'll know it. But we're often not clear about what characteristics we value in people. For example, let's say you're leading a sales team. You likely want people who are extremely good people people. They have emotional intelligence, so they can connect with people. They care about others. Plus, you may want people who are busy. They already have many things going in their life, and this demonstrates that they are productive and capable people. They are not afraid to work, and you like this because you need leaders who lead by example. You know that what your leaders do duplicates. So choose the characteristics in your leaders you want to see manifest in your organization. And here's the truth. Before you are a leader, success is all about growing yourself. When you become a leader, success is all about growing others. Okay, next leadership question is this. How do you help your team see what needs to change and then lead them there effectively? If you were to take a look at history and examine some of the best leadership decisions ever made, one of the top two or three has to include Steve Jobs' decision when he returned to Apple. 
you know much of his story. He was born to a Syrian father and a German mother. He was adopted shortly after his birth. He attended Reed College, but withdrew. And finally, Jobs and Steve Wozniak co-founded Apple in 1976 to sell Wozniak's Apple personal computer. Together, the duo gained fame and wealth a year later with the production and sale of the Apple II computer. In 1985, Jobs departed Apple after a long power struggle with the company's board and its then-CEO, John Scully. That same year, Jobs took some Apple employees with him and founded a company named Next, a company that specialized in computers for high education and business markets, and Jobs served as its CEO. In addition, he helped start Pixar, producing the first 3D computer animated feature film, Toy Story, and becoming a leading studio producing over 27 films. Well, in 1997, Jobs returned to Apple as CEO after the company's acquisition of Next. Walter Isaacson said when Jobs returned to Apple in 1997, it was producing a random array of computers, including a dozen different versions of the Macintosh. Well, after a few weeks of product review sessions with his team, Jobs finally had enough. Stop, he shouted. This is crazy. He grabbed a magic marker patted his bare feet to a whiteboard, and drew a two-by-two two grid. Here's what we need, he declared. Atop the two columns, he wrote consumer and pro. He labeled the two rows desktop and portable. Their job, he told his team members, was to focus on our four great products, one for each quadrant. All other products would be canceled. There was a stunned silence. But by getting Apple to focus on making just four computers, he saved the company. You see, deciding what not to do is as important as deciding what to do, Jobs said. And that's true for companies. It's true for leaders as well. So lesson one from Jobs is this. Focus your team. You can't do everything. Focus is powerful. Ask yourself what key activities yield the most results. What activities match the market best? Then do those things. Well, after he got Apple on the right track, Jobs began taking his top 100 people on a retreat each year. On the last day of the retreat, he would stand in front of a whiteboard and ask, what are the 10 things we should be doing next? People would fight and get their suggestions on the list. And after much jockeying, the group would come up with a list of 10. Then Jobs would slash the bottom seven and announce, we can only do three. There is power in this exercise. Perhaps you could consider meeting with your team or family and make a list of the 10 things that should be done next in the coming months to address the emerging needs of the market. Then focus on only the best three. On your team, what do you focus on? Why do this? Because your focus will set the direction. In your family, what's your focus? A parent who focuses on communication will get kids who can communicate. A parent who is aspirational will do the same, get kids who are aspirational. A parent who lets kids fail but does so with immense encouragement will get resilient kids. Well, Jobs' approach to leadership allowed Apple to introduce the iMac, the PowerBook, then the iPod, the iPhone, and the iPad. It all started with the iPod. Apple offered consumers a way to take all of the music they could ever want with them. Plus, they complemented that with the launch of iTunes. 
which was free to download. iTunes allowed people to buy music, movies, and books, and Apple suddenly had a new revenue stream that its previous computing focus would never have generated if they hadn't done this exercise. Well, the iPhone came next, and you can see the success of Apple. As a leader, Jobs made this happen because he focused the team on what consumers needed. He said, our task is to read things that are not yet on the page. And he did this with a unique technique called the reality distortion field. The reality distortion field is a strong will that has the ability to bend any reality to fit the desired purpose. And Jobs believed that our team's reality is malleable in the presence of a new view and immense persistence. What you perceive of yourself and exhibit to the world becomes the reality that others are convinced of. For example, if you are nervous speaking in public, everybody else picks up on it and you project your unpolished skills as a reality. If you believe you're not good with people and keep sitting in a corner at parties, you never get a chance to improve and your poor socialization skills become the reality. The same thing happens when you perceive yourself as powerful and skilled. If you believe you are a strong leader, you grab the opportunity to lead and your leadership becomes the reality. By changing what you think of yourself, you can change the reality around you. And this works with teams as it does with people. You know, when Jobs was designing the iPhone, he decided that he wanted the phone's face to be a tough, scratch-proof glass rather than plastic. He met with Wendell Weeks, the CEO of Corning, who told him that Corning had developed a chemical exchange process in the 1960s that led to what it dubbed Gorilla Glass. Well, Jobs replied that he wanted a major shipment of Gorilla Glass in six months. Weeks said that Corning was not making the glass and didn't have the capacity. Don't be afraid, Jobs replied. Well, this stunned Weeks, who was unfamiliar with Jobs' reality distortion field. He tried to explain that a false sense of confidence would not overcome engineering challenges, but Jobs had repeatedly shown that he didn't accept that premise. He stared unblinking at Weeks. Yes, you can do it, he said. Get your mind around it. You can do it. Well, Weeks recalls that he shook his head in astonishment and then called managers of Corning's facility in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, which had been making LCD displays, and told them to convert immediately to making Gorilla Glass full-time. We did it in under six months, he said. We put our best scientists and engineers on it, and we made it work. As a result, every piece of glass on an iPhone or iPad is made in America by Corning. Now, what about you and your team? Can you distort the accepted practices that have become reality for your team? Can you, like Steve Jobs, help bend reality so that the things that seem impossible today are possible tomorrow? I've seen this work in many organizations. You know, years ago, I was leading a business in Taiwan. We had a great team, but sales had stagnated. The team culture was defined by the talk you heard around the office. Oh, the market is tough. We were once the growing leader, but there are too many new competitors. The things we used to do don't work anymore and more and more. So one day we gathered everyone in a room and I asked a lot of questions. 
At the time, we were selling our products exclusively through a call center or online. And the first questions I asked were about the customers and why they bought products like ours and where and how they purchased them. As we talked, it became obvious that the people of Taiwan are largely social people. They love to interact with each other, but they didn't have much of an opportunity because their homes are so small and they're too small to host people. And the office was usually not the place to do this either. So one leader in our meeting suggested that we open small stores on each street corner where people could come to shop, socialize, and bring their friends to introduce them to our products. But then came the impossibilities. It was impractical. It would be too expensive. We couldn't staff or train the people necessary. And the language immediately surfaced as to why we couldn't do it. It took three days, but we ran the numbers. The cost wasn't prohibitive if we changed our way of operating. Inventory could be moved from our large warehouses to small stores. Employees could be shifted from call centers to stores, and on it went. Soon we realized that the centers would give a home to our marketing executives from which to work and find new partners. And this changed everything. Our change in business model propelled us to double our size in the next three years. Here's the point. What does your team need to distort their supposed realities? Whatever it is, don't wait another day to begin the process. Okay, moving on to our next leadership question. What can you do to turn the tide on your team or in your family? You know, when we think about the leaders of the Revolutionary War in the United States, we often picture old men. But in 1776, they were nothing of the sort. Jefferson was 33 years old when he drafted the Declaration of Independence. John Adams was 40, and Washington was the old man at 43. Washington had never commanded an army in battle before. Washington's army was hardly an army. They were rude, crude, ununiformed, undisciplined, untrained farm boys. They had fought for months and years without a major victory. They lived in deplorable conditions, sickness, lack of clothes, and constant discouragement. On Christmas night, Washington and his rabble crossed the Delaware to surprise the British at Trenton. It was bitterly cold. Two men froze to death because they had no winter clothing. But the little army prevailed in a surprising victory over the British. And despite that victory, the war was far from over, and very little would indicate that the Americans would eventually win. So given all of that, you have to imagine in your mind's eye the scene that takes place on December 31st. All of the enlistments for the army were up at the end of the year. Almost every soldier was free to go home in a matter of hours. Everything they had fought for hung in the balance. Washington called his troops into formation. They were tired, exhausted, cold, sick. Clothes and men and women were worn out. They had endured freezing conditions, lack of food, inadequate medical support, and one privation after another. At some point, you have to assume that they were saying to themselves, why try anymore? Or at least, why am I here? Because I'm not making much of a difference. Why try? Now, I don't know if your team at times feels like saying, why try? We tried once and it didn't work. Or I feel anxious and stressed all the time. Or the market has moved and I can't seem to be successful anymore. Well, if this sounds familiar, then take a lesson from Washington. With their minds set on going home, 
and accepting the fact that the British Army was more well-supplied, trained, and capable, with the thoughts of escaping back to their homes and letting someone else pick up the fight, Washington rides out in front of the formation and urges them to re-enlist. He said if they would re-enlist for another six months, he would give them a bonus of $10 each. These men and their families were starving that $10 would be a godsend to most. The drums rolled, and those who would stay and re-enlist were asked to step forward. No one stepped forward. The drums kept rolling, no volunteers, no movement. Washington turned and started to ride away. Then, as if to try one last time, he stopped, contemplated, and turned back. He spoke to them again. And among other things, he said, My brave fellows, you have done all I asked you to do, and more than could be reasonably expected. But your country is at stake, your wives, your houses, and all that you hold dear. You have worn yourselves out with fatigue and hardships, but we know not how to spare you. If you will consent to stay one month longer, you will render that service to the cause of liberty and to your country which you can probably never do under any other circumstance. In short, he said, you have a chance to serve your country in a way nobody else will be able to do again. Just try for one more month. This is the time. You have a chance to do something remarkable if you will just stay and try. Again, the drums rolled. And this time the men began stepping forward. God Almighty, wrote Nathaniel Green, inclined their hearts to listen to the proposal, and they engaged anew. They stepped up to try again, placing their faith in God and George Washington. Those 19,000 men and women would go on to change history. So here's the thing. When you lead, don't quit on your team. Don't give up. Keep encouraging, even when it's hard. Keep trying. Keep urging and listening and giving, and you will find that as a parent or team leader, that you will turn the tide in your favor. Most of all, thank you for being here today. And don't forget to join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.